Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm Jonathan Malaberti. Before we get started on Rolling Stones Part 3, please remember to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us uh, on social media with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Okay, I bring you Rolling Stones Part 3. If they wanted to make it in show business, the Rolling Stones couldn't simply go on recording blues covers. The Beatles had changed the game. What it meant to be a pop group had changed completely as Lennon-McCartney compositions were flooding the airwaves and topping the charts. And if the Stones wanted to graduate past pubs and dance halls and get radio play, they couldn't keep re-recording Chuck Berry songs. Initially, writing songs hadn't really occurred to the band. They recorded songs like Poison Ivy and Come On and hoped the singles would be enough to get the fans in the door to see their far more exciting live performances. For a while, this method worked. Keith Richards remembers, quote, When we first took off, we were too busy on the road to think about writing songs. Also, we reckoned it wasn't our job. It hadn't occurred to us. Mick and I considered songwriting to be some foreign job that somebody else did. I rode the horse and somebody else puts the shoes on, unquote. The reality of songwriting hit them when Lennon and McCartney penned their second single, I Want to Be Your Man, and suddenly Mick and the rest of the band started to think more seriously about songwriting, and they started to craft bits and pieces of songs here and there. A lot of the time, the band recorded songs attributed to all five members under the pen name Nanker Felge, uh, a play on words combining the friend uh, James Felge and an inside joke, Nankering, and they recorded some original material that way, uh, kind of letting everybody in the band take credit for what was being written. But this was unsustainable and not a serious enough attempt at songwriting that would lead them to consistent charting music. Their third UK single was another cover, this time Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away. The song had an exciting Bo Diddley-style beat and caused enough enthusiasm to earn them a top five record in the Melody Maker charts in the UK, but by this time, it was clear that something had to change in the band's creative process. It was a mixture of Andrew Luke Oldham's ambition and Mick Jagger's determination to build on the success of the band by busting into the pop world that the Rolling Stones began to write their own music. Andrew Luke Oldham was determined to market the Rolling Stones as the musical challengers to the Beatles, the grittier, dirtier, more dangerous pop group, and crucial to this was to develop a songwriting team that could rival the Lennon-McCartney partnership. In Oldham's mind, it had to be a duo, or else the band would lose its central identity as a single, cohesive pop unit. So Oldham decided to make Keith Richards and Mick Jagger the creative engine of the Rolling Stones. Why he chose Jagger and Richards as opposed to Jagger and Jones, or Richards and Jones, is unclear. Oldham was close personal friends with both Jagger and Richards, and the three of them actually lived together at a time, creating a sort of division in the band as Jagger, Richards, and their manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, created one camp, and Watts, Wyman, and Jones were sort of demoted to the other secondary rhythm section camp. Oldham also had a general impatience for Brian Jones, who we saw as a potential liability for the band, given his behavior, his unwillingness to move away from the blues, and so on. With the duo chosen, Andrew Luke Olden began to pressure Mick and Keith to start writing songs together as much as possible. Allegedly, Oldham even locked Mick and Keith in the kitchen and told them they weren't allowed to come out until they had a song written. Now, Mick and Keith both remember this event a little differently. 
Keith tends to think that Oldham literally locked them in a room and didn't let them out until they had a complete song. Mick says that maybe Oldham jokingly said that he'd lock them in a room until they came out with a song, but the main point he wanted to make was he wanted them to get serious about writing music. Like many Stone stories, uh, the selective memories kick in and we'll never know what actually happened, but the point was Oldham wanted them to write songs, and most importantly, Oldham told the guys to write stuff that wasn't blues. He wanted ballads, like John and Paul. Mick and Keith began to write songs pretty obsessively after this. Much of it pretty weak, they felt like they were pretty far behind the curve, they already released a few singles before they even started to write songs, so they were nervous to put out their early compositions to Stones fans, who were already used to a certain quality. Keith recalls, quote, After that, we wrote loads of airy-fairy, silly love songs for chicks and stuff that didn't take off. We'd give them to Andrew, and amazing to us, he got most of them recorded by other artists. We didn't dare for months and months to write a song for the Stones, unquote. With songwriting, though, Mick and Keith were persistent. Once they started writing songs, it was their number one mission in life. Mick Jagger said of the early songwriting period, quote, Every little moment we had hanging around, Keith and I would be sitting around with guitars trying to write songs. We wrote songs all the time. We were constantly coming up with ideas, unquote. The first song that Mick and Keith thought was good enough for the Stones to record was a little ballad with simple lyrics called Tell Me, recorded and released in early 1964, with Keith playing a beatly 12-string guitar, Mick singing, Bill and Charlie playing bass and drums, and Brian Jones playing a pretty nice electric guitar solo. Tell Me was chosen as an A-side single in the United States, and it climbed up to number 24 in the charts that summer making the first Jagger Richards composition a minor hit. Jagger recalled, quote, The first song I remember writing for the Rolling Stones was Tell Me, which was a tiny minor mini hit, which was very gratifying because you know we'd only done these cover songs, unquote. The Jagger-Richards writing partnership was a huge turning point in the band's history, as it marked the beginning of the end of Brian Jones's leadership in the Stones. Andrew Logue Oldham decided to make Mick and Keith the rival to John and Paul, with the other members of the band serving somewhat of a secondary role in the eyes of the public, which obviously limited Brian's role as the blues purist, the band leader, and the band teacher. But the Jagger Richards dominance extended well past songwriting. Mick and Keith were selected to do most of the interviews, and Oldham was even insistent that Keith learn how to sing so he could sing backup vocals for Mick. Until this time, it was Bill Wyman and Brian Jones doing the backup singing. Bill Wyman later remembered, quote, Andrew undoubtedly pushed Keith against Brian for second place in the band behind Mick. When we began, Brian and I did the backup singing, because Keith couldn't sing. He's still not a natural singer. Brian sang with Mick on Walkin' the Dog, and Brian and I also did the backup vocals to Mick on Time is on My Side. But by 1965, Andrew was pushing Keith to sing in the studio so that he could project him with Mick as a coupling, unquote. As it turned out, Oldham was right to pick Mick and Keith as the songwriters. When it came to songwriting, Brian Jones never really succeeded. Maybe it's because he didn't have a songwriting partner, or maybe he didn't have the confidence, patience, or ability to compose original music. Either way, Brian Jones never wrote a song for the Rolling Stones. It wasn't for lack of trying, either. Brian tried for years on and off to write songs, but he'd only come up with little bits and pieces here and there, lyrical ideas or unfinished chord progressions. 
The little material he did write never saw the light of day, because Brian never worked up the courage to show the rest of the band, who, by the mid-1960s, didn't really need any material anyways. The idea within the band at the time was that Brian simply couldn't write songs, making Brian just another musician in the band. That's not to say that Brian wasn't important to their sound. Brian's musical contributions to the Stones are many, and we'll talk about that later in the podcast in greater detail. However, the Jagger Richards songwriting team meant that Brian Jones was no longer the creative leader of the Stones. Unlike Charlie and Bill, Brian's ego wasn't satisfied simply being a Rolling Stone and playing with the band. 1964 was a big year for the Stones, and Brian was still very much a crucial part of the band and their music. However, the next phase of the Rolling Stones had begun, and Brian would, from this point on, always feel like an outsider, and act like one. His instinct was to double down on musical purity, possibly because he felt that if the band wasn't playing the blues, his role in it would dwindle. This didn't help his status within the band, especially because in the early days of recording, Brian often acted like he was still the leader, or above the others in some way, even insisting that he get to stay in different hotels or better rooms than Mick, Keith, Bill, and Charlie. Not only this, but now that Brian didn't control the books and the money anymore, the other guys were refusing to put up with Brian's managerial pay, which gave him more money than the rest of them. All of this on top of Brian's uh, asthmatic episodes, which became more frequent, uh, and he started to miss more and more gigs, and the other guys kind of stopped caring. Brian's behavior became more and more erratic as he lost control of the Rolling Stones, while his band's patience for Brian became thinner. The fall of Brian Jones had begun. In early 1964, the Rolling Stones had released a few singles, and their busy touring schedule gave them national recognition among music fans in England. This meant that it was probably time to release an album. In January and February of 1964, the Rolling Stones quickly recorded a handful of material, mainly covers, for their debut album, which was recorded in a cheap little studio with egg cartons on the walls. The Stones were still primarily on their mission led by Brian to show the world that American R&B was a superior musical genre, so the album is filled with songs like I'm a King Bee by Travis Monroe, Carol by Chuck Berry, and I Just Want to Make Love to You by Willie Dixon, made famous by Muddy Waters. They also included a couple of Nanker Felge songs for the tunes they created, uh, credited to all five members like now I've Got a Witness, Little by Little, and finally, the only Jagger Richards composition to make the album, Tell Me. The album, which was simply titled The Rolling Stones in the UK and England's newest hit makers for the United States market, was released in the spring of 1964. It has a lot of energy, and it's probably the record that encapsulates that early Stones sound best, with Brian and Keith's guitar weaving being a pretty obvious highlight. The reception for the album was overall positive, especially in Britain, where the Stones had already gained a big following. The album climbed all the way to number one, giving the Stones a huge boost in popularity, and led to a flurry of media attention about these guys. Uh, one newspaper stated, quote, Who would have thought a few months ago that half of Britain's teenagers would end the year with heads like hair pudding basins? The Stones look straight out of the Stone Age. Already with just one disc in the hit parade, they've reached fifth place in Melody Maker's ratings. 
Their success seems to lie in their offhandedness. We just please ourselves, they say. But remember, millions of teenagers in 1964 may end up looking like them, unquote. It's true, by 1964, a total mania had come to surround pop music in Britain. Most famously, Beatlemania, which struck England in 1963 and made it so everywhere the Beatles were associated with, from clubs they played to their childhood homes, were mobbed by screaming fans. Uh, this culture extended uh, to the second biggest band in England, the Rolling Stones, as they toured the country through 1963 and 1964. When they started playing R&B at the Crawdaddy Club, they had a few girls clawing at them in the front row, and they thought it was cool. In the early days, they toured as support acts, playing ballrooms, pubs, and clubs, which, depending on the night and the city, might be either a sold-out show or an empty room. Andrew Luke Oldham was determined to turn them into pop stars, and with months of grooming and booking television and radio slots, the Stones were feeding the appetite for pop stars. By the release of their first album in 1964, the frenzy surrounding them began to reach a boiling point, or so they thought. Rolling Stones concerts turned into rallies where hundreds, even thousands of screaming teenage girls would completely mute the sound of the band. After a few minutes, the security, unable to handle the mob, would break and the girls would flood the stage, meaning Mick, Keith, Brian, Charlie, and Bill pretty much had to run for their lives. Keith remembers this early mania, saying, quote, we got bigger and bigger and more and more crazy until basically all we thought about was how to get into a gig and how to get out. The actual playing time was probably 5 to 10 minutes at max. In England, for 18 months, I'd say we never finished a show. Brian and I used to play Popeye the Sailor Man some nights, and the audience didn't know any different because they couldn't hear us, unquote. Pretty quickly, the Stones figured out that at every venue they needed an escape route. And pretty soon, the show became not about the music, but about how to get back to the van without being torn apart. The band felt conflicted about the mania surrounding them. Uh, Brian loved it. In some ways, it was exactly what his ego needed. Mick, Keith, and Bill liked it at first, but they got tired of not being able to play and having to run for their lives every show. Charlie Watts absolutely hated it. Charlie said, quote, I hated that. I hated being chased by girls and all that. It used to really embarrass me. I wish I could have turned it off when the show stopped, unquote. The fun stopped when the band realized how dangerous running away from an angry mob actually was. Keith remembers, quote, The power of teenage females of 13, 14, or 15 when they're in a gang has never left me. They nearly killed me. I was never more in fear for my life than I was from teenage girls. The ones that choked me, tore me to shreds, if you got caught in a frenzied crowd of them, it's hard to express how frightening they could be. You'd rather be in a trench fighting the enemy than to be faced with the unstoppable killer wave of lust and desire or whatever it is. The cops are running away, and you're faced with this savagery of unleashed emotions." Unquote. Part of the appeal of the Stones, especially in the early pop star days, was that they were an answer to the Beatles. Andrew Lug Oldham had them lean heavily into this image and promoted the Stones as dangerous. The press ate it up. They didn't like the looks of these guys. Their hair was too long and not well kept like the Beatles. They smoked and swore and gave one-word answers in interviews, giving the public the impression that they didn't care. The famous headline about the Stones in 1964 said pretty much everything. 
It said, quote, would you let your sister go with a rolling stone? Unquote. Oldham wanted the stones to seem dangerous. In fact, he used uh, the idea that parents who generally liked the Beatles didn't approve of the stones as a way to drum up support for rebellious teens. Oldham said in 1964, quote, if parents begin to like the stones, the teenagers who made that group will begin to feel they're losing them to older people and discard the group. I've made sure the Stones will not be liked too much by older people, unquote. Parents didn't just prefer the Beatles. I mean, they hated the Stones. They thought they were a terrible influence on the youth of Britain. One reporter confirmed the sentiment of disapproval towards the Stones by saying, quote, Dirty, scruffy layabouts, long-haired thugs. That's the kind of talk you get when you mention that wonderful group, the Rolling Stones, unquote. The connection between Rebellion and the Rolling Stones was crucial to their image. Where the Beatles played concerts for the Queen, the Stones played to rebellious teens and kind of disrespected the establishment. Andrew Luke Oldham made the gamble that by making the Stones the band of Rebellion, the opposite of the Beatles, they could actually compete with the Fab Four. And so far, in 1964, all was going to plan. To support their album, the Stones continued to tour Britain. They explored new parts of the country, like Scotland, and they even traveled to places in Europe in the spring of 1964. Andrew Lugue Oldham thought it was a good time for a tour of the United States. This was a big and risky move. If bands didn't make it in the United States, they usually were toast when they came back to the UK. It was like a test to see if they were actually cool, if Americans thought they were cool. Now, the Rolling Stones had so much going for them. They had an exhausting touring schedule, their popularity was beaten only by the Beatles, and their recording career was beginning to show signs of real promise. The only problem was they hadn't really had a hit yet, even in England. Sure, they had some successful singles, and uh, Not Fade Away was a top five hit, and their album was really well-liked and selling well, even a number one in the UK, but... The Stones didn't have a She Loves You or a From Me to You or a Can't Buy Me Love. I mean, honestly, nothing in that early catalog was really that memorable. They were propelled forward more by the mania of pop music than anything else. The Beatles had famously waited until they had a number one hit in the U.S. before they crossed the pond, and with I Wanna Hold Your Hand, John and Paul secured a top slot for Beatles music for the rest of the decade and guaranteed a warm welcome when they arrived in the U.S. in February of 1964. The Stones were nowhere near that level, but Oldham believed that the Beatles had broken the dam, and that the Stones had to make their names in America before it was too late. So Andrew Luke Oldham began a public relations campaign for the Stones in the United States, getting in contact with magazines, radio stations, and venues to make sure the Stones had an energetic welcome when they got there. Oldham had learned that the more the Rolling Stones were advertised as the contrast to the Beatles, the better. So headlines all across the U.S. began to buzz about the dirtier, more dangerous Beatles that were coming to America. One headline read, quote, Shaggier, shabbier, and uglier than the Beatles, the group recently rolled Ringo and the Mates out of the number one position on the English charts, unquote. And another read, quote, 
Those who think the Beatles caused too much of an uproar when they arrived here had better take to the bomb shelters when the Rolling Stones arrive. They are hard to describe. They don't believe in bathing, they wear dirty old clothes, their hair is twice as long as the Beatles, and they never comb it, unquote. For some reason, the press loved focusing on how dirty the band was, which wasn't true. They all bathed, and nobody hated this image more than Brian, who would wash his hair compulsively and make sure his clothes were clean. America was a huge deal for the Rolling Stones. Not only was it a gateway to true superstardom and success, but their musical roots came directly from the American South. For the first time, they were going to get to visit the land of Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry and Jimmy Reed, which for them was a dream come true. To them, making it in America was more than just about fame or competing with the Beatles. It was about being accepted by their musical home. Mick said about American music before the tour, quote, I'd like to go to the Deep South and see some of the blues singers there. British music has nearly all been inspired by America, though it does have some originality. I think the Beatles have influenced American music, but it's really only American music going over to the Beatles and the Beatles bringing it back to America, unquote. The Stones left for America in early June of 1964, about five months after the Beatles. Their trip started off very well, uh, with a warm goodbye to the Stones at the airport in London, followed by about 500 screaming girls waiting for the band in New York City. In New York, the band gave a few interviews and did a radio show uh, where a DJ actually showed them a song by the Valentinos called It's All Over Now and suggested that the Stones record a version of it, which, of course, they later did. After a day or two in New York, they got on a plane and went to Los Angeles where they'd kick off their first U.S. tour. Their first gig was the Hollywood Palace show, uh, hosted by the legendary Dean Martin, who was pretty much roasting the band the entire time about their hair, style, music, and never taking them seriously or respecting them. When it came time to play, the band was pretty stiff. I mean, they were pretty caught off guard. One of the most famous people in America just absolutely trashed them uh, in public on television. And Keith, early on in the set, broke one of his guitar strings, and they had to play Not Fade Away, I Just Want to Make Love to You, and Tell Me, constrained by Keith's guitar. Their spirits were lifted when they played a successful show the next day in San Bernardino, with girls storming the stage and usual uh, volume problems that prevented them from completing the show, but to them, that was a success in America. After LA, the band went to Texas to play a string of shows. They met their future saxophonist, Bobby Keys, who we'll talk more about later in the podcast, but overall, Texas was not kind to the Rolling Stones. The first show they played was met with a mixture of confusion and straight-up disdain, which, uh, you know, much of the crowd was heard laughing and booing the long-haired English kids trying to play the blues. They played a few more underwhelming shows throughout Texas, and they hung out in some Texas bars, uh, and sort of got a feel for the, the country before traveling to Chicago with their egos damaged. In Chicago, they were once again teased and disrespected by radio hosts and journalists because of their hair. However, in Chicago, they got to visit the legendary Chess Records, where their idols like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf recorded their music. When they got to the studio, they got to meet Muddy Waters, who was on a ladder painting the ceiling. Not exactly what the Stones thought their hero would be doing, but Muddy was very polite and told them how much he loved their music. An unbelievable honor for the Rolling Stones. 
At Chess, the Stones decided to record some material themselves, and they recorded covers of It's All Over Now, which the radio host told them about, uh, Time Is On My Side, and a few other songs. None of them were Jagger Richards' originals. The atmosphere at Chess brought something out of them. Charlie Watts said, quote, The sound was the thing. It was such a great room. And the engineer, Ron Mallow, was fabulous. They just had a much better idea of the sound of rock and roll, unquote. Their next show was more of a disappointment. Out of a hall that fit 15,000 people, less than 500 showed up, and the Stones played to a nearly empty hall. Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Omaha, all tour stops that were disappointments to the Stones compared to their expectations. Word about their lackluster reception began to show in the papers, with one paper saying, quote, The Stones are being treated as freaks in America. People gasp in amazement when they appear at airports, in hotel lobbies, and in the streets. Men have whistled, and girls ask if they wear lipstick and carry purses. No one takes them seriously, unquote. The tour ended with a few well-received shows in New York City. Uh, they played a good show at Carnegie Hall. Uh, but there was no question the Rolling Stones' first U.S. tour was a failure. Mick Jagger remembered the tour saying, quote, It was really like being a new group trying to break through. Hair questions drove me potty in America. I suppose they've got to start from scratch in a new country where they don't know us, but I got cheesed off with the whole thing, unquote. They gained a lot from the tour, though. I mean, they loved uh, a lot of what the U.S. had to offer, like the radio stations, the record stores, Chess Records, that was a fantastic experience, the food, the girls. But after the tour, morale hit a sudden low. The Stones had really been taken down a peg and pretty much rejected by the country that their music had come from, and the country that so warmly welcomed the Beatles just a few months before. Suddenly they were thinking maybe they weren't even comparable to the Beatles. Maybe they were just an English bar band that played R&B covers. Their luck, though, was just about to change. The Stones made it back to America in early summer of 1964. For a minute, there was some fear that the American tour was the beginning of the end for the band, but they were in for a definite treat. They decided to release a song that they recorded at Chess Records, It's All Over Now, as a single, backed by a Jagger Richards composition called Good Times, Bad Times. It's All Over Now, which the Stones liked but never really thought of as a band staple or even that big of a hit, reached number one in the UK, making it their first ever number one single. It's All Over Now came out of left field for everyone. Uh, I mean, everybody who heard it had something to say. John Lennon, for example, criticized Keith's guitar solo in the song, and critics seemed to love the country and western feel to the song and the new direction for the Rolling Stones. Suddenly, the Stones, after just a week or two of their U.S. disaster, were bigger than ever in the U.K. The Stones were shocked by the song's success. Mick Jagger said, quote, We never thought about it. We just played it. I suppose it's a bit hicky. We certainly haven't gone off R&B. We just play the way we feel. If it comes out country-sounding, well, it comes out that way, unquote. The Stones could breathe a sigh of relief. They were still beloved in Britain. Conquering America would just have to wait. However, Brian, who was starting to reject any marker of success that didn't help him retain his leadership of the band, wasn't happy with the single, even if it was a number one. When It's All Over Now topped the charts, 
he didn't have a good word to say about it, and he kept telling his bandmates that there was just something he didn't like about it. Brian Jones's feelings about the Stones' direction was starting to clash with his bandmates, and as the 60s progressed, Brian's musical taste became both crucial and sometimes incompatible with the Rolling Stones' sound. It's All Over Now was just the beginning. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Follow us at Rock Band's Podcast on Instagram and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Next week is going to be a really great episode. Um, I think you're going to love it. So until next time, listen to the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs>